0: And hello from Boise and Points Beyond. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast
1: looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And if it sounds like I'm speaking to you from
0: far, far away, it kind of is uh, that case. I, uh, I am in Los Angeles right now. I'm at uh, the Education Writers Association annual conference uh, we'll talk about that more later in the podcast, but uh, we did not want to miss this week's edition of the podcast because it's election week, so this is kind of an emergency podcast in and of itself uh, to catch you up on the elections and talk about other stuff this week.
1: Yeah, big primary. We've been setting it up for the last several weeks, the last month really, uh, all the interest in, in the races and the open races and all the candidates and the money being spent and everything that's up for grabs. And really, Kevin, the thing we talked about last week is how, despite all the attention to these races, particularly the the governor's race, we didn't know what was going to happen, but now we do know what happened, at least in the primaries. And you took the lead on covering the governor's race in the primaries. What were your biggest takeaways uh, from Tuesday night? Well,
0: my takeaway is, when you think about these two primaries, and they're both fascinating primaries that we were watching really closely heading into Tuesday night is that you had two very different paths to the respective nominations. Brad Little, Lieutenant Governor, has been involved in Idaho politics for years, got into the race early almost two years ago, started raising money, started raising his profile even more, even though he he had raced and won statewide elections before. Went out and really sort of did this steady, incremental kind of a campaign for the most part uh, stayed out of the fray between Tommy Alquist and Raul Labrador there there were moments, I mean he did a a pretty negative ad campaign towards the end targeting uh, Labrador's record on immigration, but for the most part a very steady uh, incrementalist kind of a campaign talking about not really revolutionary changes in state government sort of a little bit of staying the course, a little bit of building on what we've seen the past 12 years. Uh, on education policy especially, uh, a, a lot of, a sense of trying to continue what's been done the past few years uh, coming out of the K-12 task force. Contrast that with Paul F. Jordan's victory on the Democratic side. You had this uh, campaign that really sort of caught fire towards the end. Uh, a little bit of an insurgent campaign in the sense that Jordan did not have the endorsements of many leading Democrats around the state, uh, legislators who work worked with Paulette Jordan, uh, party leaders who've been involved in uh, their own elections, winning their own elections. All of those big endorsements went back to Adrian Belukov, the
1: the candidate uh, from 2014, the nominee from 2014. Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, So a very different approach, and You know, I've been saying all along, and I was kind of even saying it before the election, we knew something was changing in the demographics of the Democratic Party. Um, And we kind of sensed, I kind of sensed anyway, that the demographics were changing in a way that would favor a Jordan much more than an Adrian Peluca. What I didn't know going into the election was whether this was going to be the election where we saw that tipping point, where we saw that, that, you know, Bernie Sanders supporters coming back out to really galvanize behind a state candidate. So that's what that's what really I, I took away from that on the Democratic side. And I guess looping back to the Republican side, yeah, I think we'll probably be analyzing these numbers and analyzing these results, and I think people who uh, are much uh, more astute on this stuff, especially on the Republican uh, – within the Republican Party uh, are going to look at these numbers a lot more, more closely than I will, but, you know – I think what you saw in the end was a party, and a, a an electorate on the Republican side that wanted to go with more of a, a, a of a non quantity. Uh, Tommy Alquist definitely ran as an outsider. Right, Ta- talked about uh, I'm a business leader. I'm going to try to shake up government. I'm going to bring a, an outsider's approach. Raul Labrador didn't say it quite the same way, but as a, a congressman who has uh, definitely shown a willingness to to buck the system, and we saw that even before he was elected in Congress back when he was in the legislature, uh, that kind of maverick streak. And I think that may have turned off a lot of establishment Republicans who just felt a lot more comfortable with Brad Little. So, yeah, that's kind of what I thought I saw happening on Tuesday night. And it sets up, uh, it, it's going to be an interesting race. And, and I think moving forward, you had the Republicans rally on the statehouse steps, uh, on Thursday, you were there. You, you saw that. I don't know what the, I saw. Some of the photos, and uh, maybe you got a better sense of the body language there. Brad Little's going to have to work to get factions together within the Republican Party. He's going to have to get the, the Labrador supporters and the Alquist supporters to come around. But I think Jordan may have an even tougher job at that because what? that became a really nasty and personal race, not between Jordan and Belukov but between their supporters. It became a very uh, personal battle. And I think for Jordan, the job this summer is going to be to to bring the party together and bring them around to her, bring the establishment Democrats around while keeping the energy that she has within her base. And, you know, let's face it, Democrats have no margin for error. I mean, if she has any hope in the general election, she's got to bring the party together before she can really Think about getting independent voters, crossover voters. She's got to have the party behind her, and that's going to be uh, that's going to
1: be interesting to watch. Oh, I, I think you bring up a great point, and I, and I think you're right to point out that both parties are divided right now uh, for different reasons. The Democrats are in a little bit uh, of an awkward position, as you mentioned, because of their supporters and how they've been reacting to each other, but also the endorsements game. Uh, you know, all of the legislative Democrats, uh, or 12 of the legislative Democrats anyways, endorsed A.J. Belukov. Nobody endorsed Paulette Jordan. And, and none of them endorsed Trump, so right. they're in kind of a little bit of an awkward uh, situation right now. You mentioned the Republicans. That was a bitter, bitter, hard-fought primary, especially in the gubernatorials race. And I was at the Republican <laughs> unity rally, if you want to call it that on Thursday morning. That's what they called it. Um, not it's everyone... Not a, lot of, uh, not a lot of unity in Uh, uh, Underwhelming crowd, uh, for one. Uh, A lot of the politicians were there, even the politicians who lost on Tuesday. But I can tell you not everyone wanted to, for instance, shake Tommy Alquist's hand on Thursday morning. Uh, I didn't see uh, the campaign staffs that were there uh, warming up to each other. And so you sort of saw Jonathan Parker, the director of the party, uh, giving a speech and each of the uh, uh, the nominees moving forward to November talking about how they respect their opponents and they need them, um, uh, but nobody waved a magic wand and erased those hard feelings that were built up really over the last three, four, five months uh, in that Republican primary, especially in the governor's race uh, and we did see a little bit uh, of that Thursday morning a little bit of a chilly reception uh, between some factions of the party.
0: No, and I guess that doesn't surprise me, especially as you mentioned with the the, the tone of that governor's primary, uh, the tone of the advertising. But the difference is, I suspect, Republicans are kind of used to this. You know, they've had divided primaries before. They've had to oh, yeah. bring together factions after May. I mean, they're kind of old old hands at this. It's a little bit diff- different for Democrats who have not had this kind of a, a really hotly contested and, you know, bitter primary in in years so it's a different experience for democrats it's a different uh process for democrats and let's face it republicans still have a lot of margin for error i mean you know they they've got time to try to heal and they've got uh, the electoral advantage going into the fall so we'll see how that all plays out let's turn to the superintendent's race which is the one you've been watching most closely right not really any surprises tuesday night
1: no, no no surprises at all Tuesday night. Uh, the candidates that you would have considered uh, the front runners heading into Tuesday. Uh, one and, and one handling. So what are we talking about? We're talking about incumbent Republican Superintendent of Public Instruction Sheri Yubara uh, easily beating her challenger Wilder Superintendent Jeff Dillon uh, Basically sixty forty. I think it was fifty fifty nine forty one in the end, uh, but nearly a, a, a twenty point margin there. No surprise there. And Superintendent Ibarra uh, ran uh, kind of like she did four years ago—a low key campaign. Uh, she's always stressed that she's an educator first and not a politician, and she's not going to act like a politician or do the things that a politician would be expected to do. And you had talked What's about the this. The election night that I of you know, uh, the three. I mean, by far
0: the most uh, one-sided uh, night for her, I mean, compared to
1: 2014. Oh, yeah. And you had talked about, just real quickly, to stick with the Republican primary and the superintendent superintendents, you had talked for weeks about how uh, Jeff Dillon's campaign never really got going, perhaps until that statewide public television debate, and maybe it was almost too late at that point. What do you think?
0: Right. Yeah, I, I still kind of go back to that. I mean, I thought he used up kind of all of his ammunition and threw it in that one debate and I thought it was a good debate I thought uh, they both uh, went back and forth pretty well but you know one night a Friday night in April how many people were watching I, I, it, it was too little too late
1: yeah for sure uh, on the Democratic side also no surprise there uh, Cindy Wilson uh, the AP political science and government teacher from the Boise uh, school district there who um, Won 85% to 15 over her challenger. Alan Humble, uh, a Boise retiree who had been criticized for running uh, an inactive and and not transparent campaign. He was excluded. They canceled the Democratic debate because he could not prove he was running an active campaign. He was not well known in political circles. He did not have any education experience. Not surprising to see Cindy Wilson do so well, especially. You had talked uh, last week about the fundraising uh, that she put together in a, qu- in a in a short order in a short amount of time.
0: Right, and you know, again to recap that really quickly, she outraised the other three candidates in this race combined. In, in just in the first few weeks of her campaign, so you get that sense that she is uh, she is going to try to mount a serious and uh, you know aggressive campaign, and we saw another indication of that on Wednesday when she announced that she's going to retire from teaching to dedicate herself full-time to the election. I mean, yeah, as opposed to, uh, Jeff Dillon, who I think never really figured out how to juggle his job in Wilder with the job of running for statewide office. Uh, Cindy Wilson's making it clear that her job between now and November is to, uh, to run a campaign for state superintendent.
1: Kind of an emotional 24 hours for Cindy Wilson. Uh, I, I did not go out to the uh, the, the parties. I, I, I stayed home and, and ran the results online. But I had a chance to text with Cindy Wilson uh, early, early Wednesday morning after 1 a.m. Uh, and then our editor, Jennifer Swindell, spoke with her by phone on her way to school the next morning. Uh, but between winning the primary uh, Tuesday night, going to school Wednesday morning, which was essentially one of the last days for her seniors – Uh, To be able to say that she wanted to celebrate this victory with them, that some of them were able to vote for the first time in their lives and cast ballots for her, and really to say goodbye to her teaching career after 33 years in the classroom. An emotional 24 hours for Cindy Wilson. And I heard a lot of talk about how Paulette Jordan is this new force in Idaho politics. Um, But keep in mind, Cindy Wilson may have had an easier primary but got something like 10,000 more raw votes in the Democratic primary than even Paulette Jordan on a big night for Paulette Jordan. And we've seen before wow, – that interesting numbers. The those Democrats have them. the ability to, in the past, make the superintendent's race close. We saw that four years ago. Uh, but in we saw t- it four years ago when, when Navarro was elected. We saw it in 06,
0: and we saw it in 02. 02 was the last time a state uh, – the Democrats have won a statewide race, and it was for a state superintendent, but – uh, a couple of near misses uh, since then i think the, the record shows that idaho voters are a little bit more comfortable with uh voting for a democrat in that race uh maybe crossing over to support a democrat in that race uh and, and again between the fundraising and the fact that uh, she's uh, stepping down from her teaching job to run full time I, I think signals that this is going to be a a pretty competitive race uh, on paper Sitting here the third week of May, if you were to handicap and say, is there one
1: race uh, that the Democrats have the best shot at, uh, at winning, this is probably it. Yeah, uh, just one set of numbers to, to keep in mind. I don't want to bore you with numbers, but on a big night for Paulette Jordan in the Democratic primary, uh, got around 39,000 votes. Cindy Wilson in the same Democratic primary... Uh, got about fifty thousand votes. Uh, That's yes. not insignificant. I mean, not only is it ten thousand more votes, but you just got to think about this is the
0: the act of somebody filling in the blank for a candidate. If you do that once, odds are pretty good you're going to do it again. You're going to a get back to the polls in November, and B, odds are you're going to stick with the decision you made in May more often than not. So. Those are not insignificant
1: numbers. And then again, you know, reality check uh, this is uh, a conservative state. Uh, Sherry Ibarra had more than 100,000 votes in her Republican sure. primary. So just keep that in mind. I'm not trying to say here that uh, uh, that this thing is uh, by any means over. Uh, I mean, the oh, realities no. are is we're a conservative, independent leaning state, and, and Sherry Ibarra had more than 100,000 votes, uh, certainly had a big night in her own right on Tuesday night. And you can't look past that. You can't look past the power of incumbency and you can't look past, uh, the Republican affiliation.
0: Right. And, and speaking of the, the power of incumbency with that, the onus falls now on Cindy Wilson to make a case for why voters are going to want to make a change come November. Right. Uh, and, and that was something I really didn't think, uh, Jeff Dylan did enough of during the course of the campaign. Um, it, it's, it, it's going to be her uh, her job in this campaign to make the case for, for why voters should make a change, why she is best equipped to uh, work on behalf of Idaho students and on behalf of Idaho parents, uh, running a very large state agency, uh, working in a statehouse that, let's face it, it's always going to be a Republican statehouse. Uh, why would she be the best qualified and the best match for the job at hand? So, uh, the onus falls on, on Cindy Wilson from from here on out. But
1: uh, again, early indications are that she's going to uh, make an assertive run for it. Yeah, she, she's putting her all into it. That we do know. Uh, it, it's up to the voters uh, and the candidates to make their case uh, over the next six months or or whatever it is. Uh, those are the and, two big races. Oh, what were you going to say, Kevin? Didn't mean to cut you no, off. No, I was going to. I was going to say, you know, we've talked
0: so much about these two races and.
1: Because we had nothing else to watch on well, Eastern sure. yeah. <laughs> Uh we had, we had a lot of turbulence in the legislative
0: races. We had six incumbent legislators lose in the primary, all in Eastern
1: Iowa. What's going on in Eastern Idaho? My, our old stomping grounds.
0: You know, usually, no, I, I, I'm very surprised by uh, all of that churn because you've got, uh, well, Tom Lurcher, who has spent 30 years in the legislature in two separate stints, uh, he lost on Tuesday, and he's the chair of the House State Affairs Committee, a very powerful, chair, powerful chair, committee very chair, very powerful chair. And we're almost burying the lead here on an education podcast. Julie Van Orden, the chair of the House Education Committee, lost uh, in, in a surprise election. Uh, Julianne Young, uh, Blackfoot Republican. Here
1: to four unknown uh, outside of that, outside of Eastern Idaho, perhaps.
0: Right, and ran, and it was a funny race. I mean, this legislative races are always so hard to handicap, especially primaries, because you know, it's such a small voter sample, and you, you never really know what people are thinking on the ground, and sometimes you know, it can be such a micro race, and this felt 250 miles away, well, more, because I'm down in Los Angeles, but, but not on the ground in Bingham County. This felt like a very micro race.
1: Almost um, a one-issue race, at least in terms oh, of the headlines.
0: Right, right. Focused on this uh, sex education bill that uh, Van Orden presented in her committee, didn't move out of her committee. But the fact that she wrote a bill designed to revamp Idaho's sex education laws, which were written
1: in 1970, as I recall, correct. Um, that became
0: the uh, the defining issue in this race. Yeah, moving forward, though, the big storyline now is, well, what happens now with the House Education Committee chair? What happens with all of these other committee chairs at the State House? I mean, there's you know
1: there's going to be jockeying for education. Both JFAC spots? Both JFAC spots, House and
0: Senate. Uh, both State Affairs Committees, House and Senate.
1: And that's um, if nobody November loses in November, in November, you know? And that's if nobody loses in November. And, and it's the kind
0: of thing where, you know, Just because somebody is the vice chair of one committee doesn't necessarily mean that they're, A, going to be interested in moving up. They may look at something else and decide that they're more interested in moving over to a different committee or a different committee chair,
1: or leadership, and we don't know what leadership's going to look like. No. Uh, Leadership may decide to go
0: a completely different route, so these things are totally up in the air, but my guess is that uh, you've got a lot of jockeying beginning already behind the scenes as legislators... Shop around and try to figure out well what committee would I most be interested in uh, trying to uh, trying to uh, trying to lead, and, and ultimately that's uh, that's a that's an internal decision that's made
1: uh, by legislative leadership. Yeah, so we'll, we'll watch it closely, but
0: it is uh, it's a behind the scenes
1: process. The House Education Committee is one that I follow closely. The vice chair over there is Patrick McDonald a Republican from Boise. Um, he just became vice chair, uh, I believe in the 2017 session, same session that Julie Van Norden became chair. He is the vice chair. Keep that in mind. You also have powerful personalities on that committee as it stands now, including Representative Ryan Kirby, a former superintendent of the New Plymouth School District. You also have out there uh, Representative Wendy Horman, who may have several choice assignments that she has her eye on between JFAC and she's previously served on house education. Um, and that's not even beginning to think about a dark horse or a surprise uh, coming out of uh, out of left field somewhere. But uh, those are three names to keep in mind for house ed, perhaps. Uh, perhaps McDonald, perhaps Kirby, perhaps Horman, perhaps a surprise.
0: Right, and, and mentioning Horman, yeah. There had been a lot of thought that she was positioning to move up within the ranks uh, at JFAC. May still be what she's thinking of, and that may still be what uh, the House leadership uh, is looking in And
1: terms you can't of, do both. Very, you can't but do you both. You can't do both because the committees
0: meet at the same time, so you have to choose one or the other. An interesting side, like Kimmy Kruse, uh, Kimberly Crucy from the AP. Uh, broke this at the very end of the legislative session that Maxine Bell, the House co-chair of JFAC, who's retiring, had rescinded her endorsement of Wendy Horman as the next chair uh, on the House side of JFAC. She's throwing her support behind Rick Youngblood, the uh, Republican from Nampa, who is right now the vice chair of JFAC uh, on the House side. So, interesting positioning going on that uh, we're not going to be terribly privy to because it is going on um, behind closed doors, uh, over the phone, over text, and over the next uh, several months. So we'll we'll watch it.
1: Yeah. All right. I think that catches us up. If you need to catch up on any races uh, from Tuesday's primary, if you didn't catch up on all the results, head on over to IdahoEdNews.org uh, and, and check out all the latest. We also covered um, some down ballot races, some more legislative races. But I think that's all the big races uh, from Tuesday's primaries that I wanted to get to. What do you think, Kevin?
0: Yeah, I think we've got elections covered and,
1: and yet more to talk about. Because right. Because it's been one of those weeks where, you know, you
0: know when it rains, it pours news-wise. And, and you guys have been scrambling up there uh, to stay on top of things, including the surprise development. What, what's going on with Boise State's uh, search for a new president?
1: Well, this caught me a little bit off guard on Thursday morning. Uh, the State Board of Education had been meeting in closed-door executive session all week. Uh, I expected them. It appeared likely that they would come out into open session Thursday morning. They had a pool of... That's what the State Board told me earlier the week. Right? The plan was that they were going to vote on Thursday. Right? They had a pool of three finalists that had been interviewed. They identified those finalists, and I thought that they were going to vote to name one of them the next president of Boise State University. That did not happen. Instead, in a very brief, brief meeting, I'm talking less than three minutes, uh, the state board came out and unanimously voted uh, to begin a new search committee to look for a new president of Boise State University, which kind of throws our whole timetable out of whack. Uh, We may be looking a year down the road. Uh, Not quite a year down the road, but uh, uh, certainly... um, The first of 2019.
0: Right. They name an interim president to take over uh, come July 1st when Bob Custer's retirement becomes effective and then you you keep searching. You know, and there have been rumblings and uh, Dana Oland uh, over at the Statesman uh, wrote a good story last week about some of the rumblings and some of the the consternation about the search process Uh, and and some of the social media chatter that I've just seen uh, on Thursday indicates that you know, there, there are folks who are almost breathing a sigh of relief. The state board is pressing the reset button. Uh, this does not feel like the, the field of candidates that, uh, you know, that were presented had lit a fire under the BSU community. That the, There wasn't a whole lot of, uh, you know, people weren't overwhelmed from the sense that I get. And, you know, Linda Clark, uh, State Board of Education president, I saw the press release that they put out. Uh, saying this is not a reflection on the finalists, but you know, I think a lot of people uh, are going to be skeptical of a quote like that. You're you're pressing the reset button on a process that you've been involved with for several months. If that's not a reflection on the finalists, it sure feels like a reflection on the finalists. Uh, But we'll watch it, and we'll see where
1: the process goes from here. Yeah, I was out there Thursday morning. I had a chance to talk to Dr. Clark right after the vote, and she said, you know, uh, we had good candidates. We did not have the right fit. And I think that um, you talked about people breathing a sigh of relief, and sure, it's a big decision. Uh, Boise State is in an aspirational position, right, Kevin? They had record enrollment uh, on the fall, more than 24,000 students. Uh, Bob Custer, since 2003, has... Has kind of overseen 450 million dollars. I think you reported in capital improvement projects. If you drive down Capitol Avenue right now, you'll see the new Fine Arts Center under construction. Uh, the football oh, program. Office,
0: you know, I mean, if you if you drive by the campus, you yeah. see a lot of I mean, a lot of a lot of buildings that weren't there 14, 15 years ago. You know, I think I think people are wanting the president, the next president, to be you know. Somebody who can go from this level to the next level. Oh yeah, they
1: feel like the football team has put them on uh, a national platform here. I think that they were looking for a candidate uh, with either a lot of presidential experience or fundraising experience or someone who had presided over a school with a Division One sports program. But Boise State's in an aspirational position. They're looking to go to the next level. I think they wanted someone... That maybe they had vaguely heard of, or was perhaps a rising star at a large, successful university that boasts strong academics and athletic programs. I think that's where Boise State sees itself, and I think they wanted a little bit of pop. I think they wanted a little bit of wow factor uh, from those applicants.
0: Right. I think that's definitely kind of the sentiment uh, that that seems to be kind of bubbling up from the community. So, yeah, you know, the state board now has has its we're cut out for it again because now you're going to start over with the process. Maybe it's easier to start over with the process in the summer going into fall. Maybe that's a better time of the calendar year to start looking for applicants as opposed to sort of towards the end of an academic year, which is kind of where the Boise state job search fell on the calendar. Bear in mind state board had to fill up two other presidents positions uh, this year and and did that earlier uh, this year so. You know, this one kind of fell third in line because that's when uh, Kostra announced his retirement. Uh, so, you know, we'll say it's going to be a very, it's going to be an interesting process to watch. And we'll see if the next round of candidates, uh, we'll see if that has a wow factor with uh, with the Boise State uh, community.
1: And, and don't get too excited. Don't expect anything uh, with the bidding and procurement laws that the state board has to follow. Don't expect anything to really begin to happen until the fall with this new search committee. Uh, So it's going to be a little while. Buckle up. uh, And we'll we'll keep you posted, but we expect a slow summer uh, on that front. But at the risk of being long-winded, I want to talk a little bit about why you're in LA. You and Andrew Reed, our multimedia journalists, uh, are out of the Education Writers Conference. Uh, We're running a little bit long today, but just talk real quickly Uh, about what you're doing out there and some of the projects that we can expect from you guys, or from you, Kevin, uh, later this summer.
0: Well, we're both, Andrew and I, kind of fanning out and trying to get to as many seminars as possible. Uh, Education Writers Association's annual conferences are always this treasure trove of really interesting uh, presentations, really interesting panels, and we've tried to be in different rooms uh, covering different things. Uh, but we were both in the, um, the room Thursday morning when we heard from um, two of the survivors of the Parkland uh, shootings, uh, David Hogg, Emma Gar- Gonzalez, uh, he, you've seen them uh, become the voices on this issue uh, for a lot of students. Uh, and we heard from uh, a student uh, from Chicago uh, talking about gun violence in Chicago, which is you know, such a, a tragic chronic issue in that city. Uh, We heard from a a student who uh, is from Newtown, Connecticut. He was uh, 11 years old the day of Sandy Hook. He was in the intermediate school, so he was not in in Sandy Hook Elementary. But he talked about how that's affected the community. And the the students talking about how this has affected their lives, how the activism uh, on this issue has really become a part of their lives. It's become, it's not something you just turn on and turn off as you could well imagine. Very, very moving and very articulate group of, of kids talking about something that I can't even imagine having gone through. I can't even imagine my kids having gone through something like that. So it was a very, very emotional and a, and a tough act to follow because we, we, we heard and have been hearing from folks about college affordability about ESSA and how that's going to roll out. I'm going to be spending um, a good chunk of this time looking at college affordability issues, which ties into the project that I'm going to be working on this year on Idaho's continuing efforts to uh, boost its uh, post-secondary completion rates. And I really want to continue to look at how college affordability factors into that equation. So a lot we're going to come home with in terms of, uh, Ideas and inspiration and we're going to share a little bit of it uh first part of next week uh we're going to write a little bit about what we've heard uh, both andrew and i we're going to team up and and give you a sense of what uh what we heard and then it's just going to inform and affect and influence our coverage moving forward it's been uh it's been a busy week down here i know it's been a really busy week in boise as we've been uh, down here uh learning but it's not been a lot of sightseeing and, and pool time this has been uh, this has been taking a lot of notes this week
1: yeah it, it sounds fascinating looking forward to um the report you and andrew file when you get back i mean uh, sadly tragically school safety has become the issue of our time um but i, I can't even imagine what that experience was like but i'm really looking forward to, to to seeing the report from you and andrew uh when you get back and i'm glad that uh you were able to participate in that and, and have that experience and, and take that perspective uh, back here to Idaho to help inform your reporting. I'm excited to meet with you uh, on Monday when you get back. And, and So thank you so much for uh, for sharing your experience and, and for going out there. I know you've been no, kind of pulling coming, double like duty, too, a little to bit. to
0: be uh, able to do this. And it's, it's, you know, it's always a great experience. This is my second EWA uh, national seminar, and you come back with... With a new sense of purpose and a lot of new ideas and a lot of new insights into uh, this beat that we cover.
1: Well, good for you. It's been uh, a busy week. I, I want to thank everybody. We set-, we set readership records on Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, the highest amount of readers that we've ever had in our five-year history. I want to thank everybody. Uh, for that and for checking us out. If you don't know yet, you can head over to IdahoEdNews.org uh, to catch all our stories on our homepage there. If you want to follow us in real, t- real time, uh, head over to Twitter and follow at IdahoEdNews. We live tweet big meetings and publish all of our big stories there. So that's another good way uh, to keep informed uh, with the education conversation. But as always, thank you so much for taking the time out. We have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit podcast. And uh, thank you so much t- for spending time with us. I'm Clark.
0: I'm Kevin. Have a good week.